Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication, and and I uh, thank the the Lord for Sister Amy and the beautiful talent she has on the piano. It's great to hear the people of God singing wonderful hymns of faith and encouragement uh, in in the body of the worship. Excuse me, I gotta get that little thing back there where it belongs. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it serves a purpose. But anyway, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And, um, and uh, we'll be continuing on in this wonderful epistle. I've, I've presented this challenge to you before. Continue to do so. We must rise above the entanglements of our earthly residency in order to embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. I challenge you to think about those things, those attitudes, those relationships, those commitments here in this life that distract you from being continually aware that your citizenship ultimately is not in this world. If you're a follower of Christ, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are, I am, citizen of heaven and therefore we are challenged continually I believe Peter the Apostle Peter like the Apostle Paul Apostle John uh, the other writers of the scriptures the Gospels themselves are continually speaking to the hearts of God's people and and causing us if, if you if you yield to the Spirit of God and what he's saying in his work he's he's lifting our chin up to look beyond the, the clutter and the clamor of, of earthly life and the things that can so easily entangle us and lift our eyes up to, to look through the eyes of our spirit to see that, that we, we are citizens of the eternal domain of God, children of God. Hence, we should think that way. Our attitude should be dominated by that reality. The, the relationships that we have should be tempered by that. The priorities that we set should reflect that. Do you live like a child of God? Do you think like a citizen of heaven? Or are you caught up in the quagmire of earthly life? I really enjoyed our seminar this weekend and I think it's so important that we as a congregation took time to give focus to the most important uh, uh, tool that God gives us to equip us, to inspire us, to encourage us in this earthly life, and that is the Word of God. And in the course of the seminar, we learned more about the Word of God. We, we uh, discovered ways and tools and techniques to help us to be able to study the Word of God, to apply the Word of God, to appreciate the Word of God, and, and so, you know, how can we be the people of God and not be very familiar with the Word of God? I like this song that Mark introduced us to, Ancient Words. It's a beautiful song, don't you think? I, I love the, the melody of it. And, but, but just the words, you know, words of life, words of hope. Give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? These ancient words given to us to aid us as we walk through this 
journey of life. And that's what Peter is, is helping us to see as he's writing here throughout this epistle. We, the body of Christ, are always in need of a word from above. We're always in need of a word from the Lord, sort of like a spiritual guidance system. I think about these huge jumbo jets that routinely crisscross the skies of the globe. Bob Bonnet may be driving one, I don't know. But anyway, you go out at night and look up into the night sky if it's clear, and it amazes me. The number of those big planes that are going across the sky, other than the space station, and, and, and zooming across. I mean, it just amazes me. And, and as I think about these huge airliners that are crisscrossing the skies of the globe and how they are absolutely dependent upon a word from, from somebody down in, in air traffic control, communicating with them, giving them directions. Not only that, but they're also dependent upon a word from their own board computers, a guidance system that helps them to fly that big plane especially in the darkness of night when the pilot's visibility is limited and, or in the swirling darkness of, a, of, a, of an angry storm and they're piloting that plane through those thick clouds and how important it is that they get a word of guidance for the safety of the passengers on board for that plane to arrive at its destination. Oh yeah, those pilots would wisely tell you they depend upon a word all along the way to make sure they're staying on track and they reach their destination. I think about back in AD 64 and 65, the Apostle Peter. He understood the difficulties that first century Christians and first century churches were facing there in Asia Minor. And, and, and he understood that they were facing all kinds of problems and struggles and hardships Certainly because they had committed to follow Jesus Christ, this was singling them out. They were being ostracized and talked about and rumors started about them. But I believe that the Apostle Peter also saw on the horizon of history the storm clouds of vast and intense persecution that was coming their way. And as he closes out his, this, this first epistle, here in chapter 5, we find the Apostle Peter giving these divinely inspired words of God to give them instruction and to give them inspiration to help to lead them successfully forward in the mission that God had given them. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. These are ancient words, no doubt about it. But they are still absolutely true and absolutely applicable to the lives of God's people today. You and I, as we journey along in life with the trials and the storms and the hardships and the challenges and the temptations. Listen, a wise Christian man, woman, a young person understands every day we need a word from above. We need a word from the word to guide us. If we're going to be successful in the Christian life and if we as a church are going to accomplish the, the mission that God has called us to, we need a word from, a word from the Word. And that's what Peter's doing as he's closing out chapter 5. If you'll look there in verse 1 with me, I want to first show you how Peter gives an exhortation to the church's leaders. So the first part of the sermon is to the pastors. How about that? Now don't y'all tune me out. 
because there are valuable things in these first verses that are important for the sheep to hear about the shepherds, okay? And so Peter's right in here, he says, the, the elders. And of course, that term, you know, is, is one of several that are synonymous and interchangeable that talks about the leaders of the church, whether that be elders or bishops or pastors. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament. And these are men who are appointed and gifted and called by God to lead the church. He says, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, speaking of Christ, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade. In this exhortation, I believe Peter is saying to the, to the leaders, and, and, and indirectly to the church, always look for the right model for Christian or for church leadership. I don't know about you, if you're trying to excel in something, to, 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 to be well in something, to do good in something, you always want to look around for a model. Someone who's ahead of you in talent and skill and knowledge that, that you can kind of pattern yourself after. You want to be like them. And the same thing would apply in, in the life of the pastor, of, of the, the shepherd of the congregation. Look for the right model for church leadership and, and the greatest of all the models, the most perfect, in fact, the perfect model would be the, the, the chief shepherd himself. The good shepherd, speaking of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus back in the Gospel of John used that, that analogy, speaking of himself. He called himself the good shepherd. Listen to what he says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, Jesus speaking here, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, which Jesus would ultimately do. In verse 26 of that same chapter, Jesus goes on to say, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He's talking to the unbelievers. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Aren't you glad? Doesn't that give you encouragement? Oh, listen, no matter how much the devil or his crowd may try to pull you out of God's hand, let me tell you something. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and you're under the blood of Christ and you have committed yourself to follow him, he plants you firmly in the palm of his hand. And there's nothing, nobody, nothing, nowhere can take you out of the hand of God. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. I like to think about it as God placing us in the hands of Christ and then the Father taking His hand and folding it over us like a clenched fist. Nothing. Oh, listen, let me tell you something. That is the ultimate shepherd. Every church would be wise to observe their shepherds, to observe their pastors, and to expect of them that they would follow the model of Christ 
That they would take their cues from the teachings of Christ and learn from the instructions of Christ. And, and that every pastor of a congregation would constantly, continually seek to pattern themselves after the example of Christ. There is no better model to follow in being a shepherd. We'll never reach the perfection of Christ and every pastor humbly acknowledges that. But that doesn't keep us from seeking to pattern our lives as we have the privilege and the awesome responsibility to lead the congregation that God's entrusted to us. We want to be like Jesus. But then also consider the model not only of the great shepherd, but also consider the model of the great apostle. And by that I'm speaking of Peter, the apostle Peter. I know he had his warts and his his hang-ups and things like that. We always laugh about Peter maybe putting his foot in his mouth on occasion. But you, listen, if you go back and read through the New Testament, you'll find that the Apostle Peter is always at the head of the list when it comes to the apostles, the disciples. Because he was regarded, even by Christ, he was regarded as a leader of the, of the disciples. And he, and he played that out even after Jesus's Death and burial, resurrection and ascension, Peter emerged to the forefront, not only as a leader of the, of the disciples, but also Peter emerged as a leader of the church. And Peter is saying, you know, I, I'm a fellow elder. He's talking to pastors. He's saying, I, I am a pastor, a shepherd of sorts too. Sure, I'm an apostle, but my heart is a shepherd I shepherd the people of God because I've been called. He, listen, Peter had unique privileges with his role as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He experienced things that a lot of people did not. By there in Matthew chapter 17, and you don't have to turn back, but you remember how Matthew recounts how Jesus took Peter and James and John and they went upon what was described as a high mountain. And there they saw, they witnessed a partial revelation is that as if Jesus pulled back the cloak of his human humanity to reveal just a peak of the, the powerful, awesome, divine, Shekinah glory. He glowed. And there with him was Moses and Elijah. And I just believe that those three disciples just fell like fainting sheep. Boom, boom, boom. I would. But they got to see it. And Peter talked about, he says, I'm a partaker of the glory that was revealed. I've seen his glory. But not only that, Peter tells us there in verse 1, as he, as he says, as a fellow elder, I, I've been a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I saw him firsthand. I saw him suffer, not just on the cross. Certainly Peter witnessed that. He's, he, Peter witnessed Jesus' beating, discouraging, but my goodness, all through his earthly ministry, think of the times that Jesus had to deal with the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, crowds that were seeking to kill him. And, and, and you know, and the way Jesus suffered physically, the way he suffered emotionally when he got the news about his good friend Lazarus having died, and Jesus, the Bible tells us, he wept, he understood the pain of grief. Peter says, look, I, I, as a fellow elder, I know something about the suffering of Christ. But probably his greatest qualification occurred after he had denied the Lord three times prior to Jesus' crucifixion. 
After Jesus' death and his burial, his resurrection, you remember Jesus met his disciples on the shore of the lake where they had gone fishing that morning, early in the morning. They looked and there was Jesus on the, sea, on the seashore and he had already prepared breakfast and they had breakfast, but Jesus pulled Peter aside. You remember, he recommissioned that broken disciple Peter, who had done the unthinkable to deny the Son of God, not once, but not twice, but three times. How in the world is it possible that God would ever use a broken vessel like that ever again? It was unthinkable in Peter's mind. He was saying, I might as well go back fishing. Jesus said, oh no, come on over here. You're no good at fishing. Look, you had an empty net. <laughs> come here. I'm going to let you go fishing, son, but you're going to be a fisher of men. Three times to recommission Peter, to reestablish him as a faithful follower, as a leader, not only of the apostles, but the leader of the church. Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then he said, Ten, or feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know, you know I love you. Then I want you to tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. Of course you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times Jesus said, Peter, I'm not done with you. Let me tell you something. You will be instrumental in shepherding my people. So tend to them, feed them, love them, guide them. I don't think Peter ever forgot that moment. He knew in his heart of hearts that he was to be a shepherd to the people of God. Who better than the apostle Peter to come out of the gate in, verse, in chapter 5 in verse 1 and say to them, listen, you have an awesome responsibility. Pattern yourself after Jesus. Pattern yourself after me. But not only as we look at this exhortation to the church's leaders, consider the, 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 the fact that Peter is exhorting them to consider the right motives for church leadership. Why do you lead? Not the fact that just you lead and serve, but, but the motives behind that. Look at verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by constraint, but, but willingly. Do you see what Peter is saying there? You, listen, if you're serving as a pastor, leader, and, and you're doing it because somebody's twisting your arm or you feel pressure, listen, get out of the business. No, a, a pastor is called to be motivated, to, you know, realizing that God has placed a divine calling on your life as a man of God, but he's also given you the opportunity to respond freely. That's what he's saying, willingly. Be happy to serve. I think about the Apostle Paul over in Romans. You know, what a wonderful example of one who shepherded the sheep of God. And I think about how Paul talked about his service to the Lord there in the book of Romans in chapter 1. Now, you know what? I don't see the Apostle Paul as being one that had to be browbeaten and arm twisted to serve the Lord after the Lord encountered him on the road to Damascus. After God, after the Lord reached Paul and struck him blind and, and, and said, why in the world are you persecuting me? From then on, I believe Paul's heart was radically transformed. And it was. And you talk about somebody that was eager to serve the Lord. I think about in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. Then verse 14, both to wise and unwise so as much as is, as is in me, I am ready 
to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Listen, saying to Paul, the apostle, the shepherd of the early church, listen, Paul, would you come on up here and maybe open up the word of God and preach the word of God? Listen, for those of you from the country, that's like saying, sick them to a rabbit hound dog. <laughs> Where, Paul says, what do you mean? Do you want to... Will I come and preach? He said, I'm ready. Just open the door. He says, listen, in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm not saying that every pastor in every church is going to have the enthusiasm of the Apostle Paul. But there ought to be an unction in the heart of a pastor that says, man, I love serving the Lord. I'm doing this because I want to do it, not because I'm under pressure or compulsion to do so. But also you'll notice that one of the motives in serving the Lord, and it's important, it's important that the church, as he consider bringing on new pastors or, you know, that, that you always look into their hearts. What is the motive behind their desire to serve? And so as we look here again, what Peter says, he says, you know, serve, you know, not by constraint, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, Another motive, a correct motive or proper motive is we should eagerly serve to please God and not for our own material gain. If you're in it for the money, if you're in it for the benefits, if you're in it for what you can gain material out of, out of it, you're in the wrong line of work. In fact, Peter puts it, he says, you know, he uses the terminology not for dishonest gain. In other words, don't be fleecing the flock. Don't be a crook. Stealing from the congregation. Taking advantage of the congregation for your own personal needs. I think about some of these high-powered, highly uh, promoted television evangelists and how they always beg. Honest to goodness, Jan and I were visiting with some friends one night and we had just finished watching the movie. And it, was, it was late. We were flipping through the channels and came across this strangest television evangelist I've ever seen. He was in the studio. It wasn't like he was in the church, but there he was. He had his leisure suit and a cowboy hat on, sitting up there in a big old easy chair. And, he's, and, and, and you know, and I thought, man, this is a different type of preacher. And I mean, he was just, he was just going down the country lane, scolding his, his, his television viewers. I don't know who would have followed him, but, but he was just giving them down country because they weren't supporting him like they should. And, and how they ought to get up off of that money and help him. And honest, it was a live program. It was a live broadcast. It was one of those cheap things. But, but, he, but halfway through his scolding the people, he said, hold it, hold it. I got, I got to go. I, I, hear, I hear the alarm going off of my Rolls Royce. So he left the studio and went out for a few minutes and came back. I thought, oh my goodness, you know. And you hear about these men who use the people, the fleece. They, they fleece the flock of God so they can live in mansions and ride around in limousines. And Peter said, don't do it for this dishonest gain. That's not the motive. So I'm going to sell my Honda and get a mule. I'm under, I'm under conviction. The Apostle Paul was a wonderful example. As he told in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he told the people, the church at Corinth, he says, listen, I, I, I'm not gaining anything out of serving you. He says, I, if, if anything, I, you know, if anything, I'm losing. <laughs> Materially. And, and in Acts chapter 20, 
Paul was you know, describing how he came to serve, and as he did, he, he supported himself. He was a tent maker. And listen to what he says, Paul, so you can capture the heart of this great apostle in, in Acts chapter 20 in verse 33. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. Paul didn't ask the church to support him. He didn't ask the church to even support the people that accompanied him, whether that be Silas or Barnabas or Timothy or any of them. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So don't do it out of dishonest gain. Don't let your motive be for material gain, but do it, serve the Lord eagerly to please the to please the Lord, serve the church to please the Lord eagerly. But look at verse 3. He says, Not nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Another motive for the pastor's heart should be to humbly set an example for the church of humble servanthood. And that's what Jesus was doing for his disciples. And that's what he was patterning for his disciples, for them to pattern for the church leaders later. You may recall in Matthew's gospel in chapter 20, when Jesus was, he, it says in, in verse, uh, Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus called the 12 to himself and says, you see the rulers of the Gentiles and how they lord it over them. And they exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. For whoever among you wishes to be great, you'll be a servant. And whoever of you wants to be first, you'll be a slave. And then he turns the attention to himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, never should a pastor confuse the biblical authority given to him to lead and shepherd the people of God. Never confuse that biblical authority with self-serving, prideful, autocratic, intimidating leadership. Never should a pastor be a tight-fisted leader yielding, wielding power over the people for his own selfish desires. People shouldn't live intimidated by the presence of the pastor or the power that the pastor holds. In fact, they, they sh it should be the opposite. They should see him as very approachable and humble like Christ. This attitude was exhibited by Christ. You remember how just before he was to partake of the Lord's Supper, the, the last um, Passover meal with his disciples, how he, he stooped himself to take on the task of the most humble, the lowest slave in a household. And the very Son of God wrapped a towel around his waist, took a basin, and began to wash the nasty feet of Peter and James and Andrew and Matthew, all of those disciples. And then challenge them to have that same kind of an attitude. Listen, a pastor's heart ought to be motivated by service to Christ and service to the people. Not be in it for what they can get for themselves or to be served themselves. In verse 4, Peter goes on to say, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade. In that early Roman Greco Roman culture, 
Crowns were given in ancient times as, a, as, as, a, as a, an award for power and for victory, to, as recognition. And Jesus is in essence saying, you serve. Don't worry about what you're going to get out of it in terms of worldly esteem or worldly possessions or personal gain. Don't you worry about that. You serve God's people. You shepherd the people of God. You be an example of humility to them. And you, you endure whatever sacrifices you need to endure. Because when the chief shepherd comes... He will hold all of his shepherds accountable, but he will reward those who are faithful with the crown, a crown of glory that will not fade. I like the way that Dr. John MacArthur put it in his commentary when he talked about that crown of glory that does not fade. He said it's the unfading, glory, it's the unfading crown that is glory. In other words, a shepherd when he is before the Lord, shares the very glory of the Lord himself. All right, now we're ready to go through the sheep. Peter turns the focus now. We see the word likewise in verse 5. Not the first time Peter's used it in this epistle. You can just look over at chapter 3 and you'll see where he uses that word. Uh, it's a transition Point, if you will, in verse 1 of chapter 3, likewise, you wives, in verse 7 of chapter 3, likewise, you husbands. So when he's shifting the focus, he uses that transition word, likewise. And you'll notice in verse 5, he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, let's just stop there a second because it seems apparent to me that the apostle wants to give some special exhortation to younger church members. And in some translations it even focuses on young men. And so there's a special exhortation here. And you know I believe Peter is building on things that have already been given in the word of God. Like back in the book of Hebrews. Twice in chapter 13 in Hebrews. And I'm sure our pastors will expound this further when they get to this. But, but in verse 7 of chapter 13 it says. Remember those who rule over you. Who have spoken the word of God to you. Whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. In verse 17 of chapter 13 of Hebrews, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So it's a word of caution to those who would be probably more prone to rebellion. Maybe the more aggressive and the more headstrong. And, and folks, listen, I can say that with a sense of clear conscience. And, you know, uh, because I, I used to be in that crowd. I know what it was like to be, you know, when you're coming along as a teenager and then a young adult, you know, you, you just kind of, you know, you're kind of bullish. You think, hey, I can tackle the world, you know. I, and, and sometimes aligning that powerful drive and that will under the headship of someone and submitting to authority is not always easy for younger members. And maybe that's why Peter has singled them out. I think about, and that's not, it's not a bad thing. I think the Apostle Peter's not saying, oh, you watch out for those young, young, young adults. You know, they're troublemakers. 
No, the church, the wise church, the wise shepherd is going to harness that energy, harness that drive, harness that zeal, and aim it towards the kingdom of God and doing the will of God and being in the word of God. Listen, that's why Paul, uh, the apostle John, in writing 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, he writes to two groups of people in that 1 John 2, 14. John says, I've written to you fathers, that would be older guys like me, I've written to you fathers because you have known him who has been from the beginning. In other words, as older Christians, you're, you're more mature in the faith. You, you have had a longer relationship with God. And, and so he says, I've written to you, but he says, I've written to you younger men because you're strong. Strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. John recognized the value of those younger men and what they could give to the church. Once, let me tell you something. Nothing is more dynamic to the life of the body of Christ than to have a group of young people, young adults, who are not buying into the philosophies of the world and chasing after the material gains of the world and all the sensual pleasures of the world, but they are wise enough to see the truth that real life, the abundant life, is a life that is encased in the will of God, dedicated to serving Christ. Oh, let me tell you something. They can be a spiritual dynamo with that wonderful surge of energy and determination and vision and will. Oh, praise God. But Peter's cautioning, make sure, make sure. Younger people, humble yourselves. Submit yourselves to the elders. But then he goes on and, and he's addressing the entire congregation as we continue to read there. Look in verse 5. Yes, all of you. Of course, if this were written in Southern, it would be you all. Yes, all of you. Be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. So he's, he's spreading out the exhortation now from after having gotten the attention of the younger men, the younger members. He said, now hold, hold on. All the church, listen, listen to me. All of you need to be submitting one to another. That is the prevailing attitude of the church, the body of Christ. That should be the distinguishing characteristic of a true church. Is that they practice this spiritual attitude of mutual submission. And isn't that what Paul was saying in Ephesians 5.21 when he says, you submit to one another in the fear of God. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, he says, don't do anything through selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. And that's what Peter's saying. All of you must submit not only to the elders, but you practice submitting to one another and be clothed with humility. The apostles' general exhortation to the church gives us a stern warning concerning sinful pride. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no room. Hear me to say, there is no room in a Bible-based, spirit-filled, Christ-centered congregation for the presence of sinful pride. Look what Peter says. He says, be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud. 
There's no place in the kingdom of God for people who are arrogantly puffed up and, and building their lives on their own sinful pride. Jesus captured that in his teaching. When we go to the wonderful Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' beatitude, you sense that Jesus was elevating the importance of a humble spirit in the kingdom of God. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus said the kingdom of God is all about people who are not walking around arrogant because of their deeds and their accomplishments and their talents and their skills and their money. He said, no, they don't belong in the kingdom of God, but people who are broken, people who are humble, people who are meek, people who are willing to bow down to serve others in the name of the Lord. He said, blessed are they, happy are they. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. He gives a stern warning about this whole idea of being humble. But we, see the, we receive the best example through our Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled himself to come here to this earth to take on humanity, the limitations of humanity that he might reveal to us the kingdom of God and to carry out his wonderful plan of redemption. I think it's interesting that the Apostle James echoes the very words of the Apostle Peter. And of course, Peter here is, is quoting Proverbs 3.34. Obviously, James is too, because over in James, in his epistle in chapter 4, listen to verse 10. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. You want to get elevated? You want to get recognized? You want to have a position of prominence? Then do what the Word says. Look at verse 6, going back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Put yourself under God's hand. Let him take you where he wants to take you. Let him bring you down as far as he needs to bring you down. Put yourself under God's hand and, and, and yield your life to him. Be humble. But look what, what he says. That he may exalt you in due time. Isn't that what James just said? That's what Peter's saying. Listen, if I, want, if I want to be important, if I want to be exalted, if I want to be raised up, I want God to be the one raising me up. <laughs> I want Him to be the one elevating me if He chooses to do that. And guess what, brothers and sisters? One day you will be elevated. You'll be raised up from the quagmire of this sinful, sordid world in which we live. You'll be lifted up, whether by rapture or the angels coming to receive you at death. And you'll be lifted up. You'll be brought up into the very throne room of God in the very celestial heavens that, that, that we, we aspire to be a part of there in the midst of the angels. The angels will see you and they will point to you and they will say, there's one of the children of God. Lift it up. Don't be so concerned about having people recognize you and, 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 and pay homage to you. Be concerned with letting God do that job in your life. 
But also the apostle gives another stern exhortation, a very urgent call to spiritual vigilance. You know this verse. We oftentimes go to it. Peter says in verse 8, talking to the members of the church, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And the devil is real. I don't care what the liberal theologians and liberal churches and liberal writers try to say. The devil is real. He is a fallen, powerful angel who brought a third of the angels out of heaven in a rebellion. And they are ruling this earthly domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is the ultimate deceiver. He's the father of, the, of lies. He is real. And he and his demonic entourage have one goal, and that is to disrupt the kingdom of God, to attack as many of God's people as possible. And Peter said, don't walk around with your eyes blinded and, and be gullible and, and, and dismissing the presence of the devil or, or demonic forces and evil forces. We live in a fallen world, a world that is anti-Christ, a world that is against the biblical tradition that are so so important to the life of a believer. Listen, we must be always with our eyes wide open as Peter says here. Be sober. Be self-disciplined, self-controlled. I wonder if Peter was thinking back to that night in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus, one of the most agonizing times of his earthly life is he's with his disciples and they go into the Garden of Gethsemane there and Jesus is under tremendous duress. And, and he tells his disciples just simply, he says, listen, I'm going over here and talk to, I'm going to talk to the Father. You pray. Pray. When Jesus asks you to pray for him, let me tell you something, that's a tall order. He didn't say go and intercept the soldiers. Don't go and, go and gather up swords and spears. He said, you get on your knees and you pray. And Jesus poured his heart out to the Father, as you well know in that powerful scene there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he came back to his disciples expecting them to be raising their hands and pouring out powerful prayers and calling upon the name of God in the, for the sake of Christ. And there they are. Sawing logs. It's a wonder Jesus just didn't kick him into Timbuktu. <laughs> he says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus was as much as saying, boys, wake up. There's spiritual warfare going on. Satan's got the big weapons. He's got everybody. Listen, wake up, boys. Be alert. Get your eyes open. The very ones that want to destroy your soul for eternity, they're here. They're battling the kingdom of God. <laughs> Peter says, be, be on you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may desire, devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And I'm not going to go back through the spiritual armor, but go back and read Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 10. Paul makes it very clear. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of evil in, in heavenly places. He said, listen, we're at war. 
What kind of a soldier is going to go into battle and roll out a sleeping bag and take a nap while the bullets are zooming over their head and, and cannons are firing and bombs are dropping? There's an exhortation to be very vigilant. But let's move on because I want to look at the conclusion of chapter 5. And, and it's interesting because we move from exhortation of the leaders, exhortation of the members, to exaltation of our great God. And ladies and gentlemen, we serve a great God. Amen? Amen. We serve the great God. There's none greater than Him. I believe that the hope of the believer rests in their understanding of the ability of their God. Did you get that? The hope of the believer is determined by their understanding of the ability of their God. I know that firsthand as I think about my own mom when she was diagnosed with ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, and, and she was invited to come down to the Winston-Salem Clinic for ALS. There's no cure for ALS. She knew that. It was already taking its toll on her. She was losing nerves in her mouth and the ability to, to eat and drink well. And her speech was going. But I, I'll never forget, I was there with her at the clinic, and they take you from station to station, from doctors, the nurses, the, the uh, physical therapists, to uh, occupational therapists, the whole round. And, and over and over, like a broken record, they were saying to my mom, they were, they were saying, Mrs. Martin, you know, there's nothing we can do to cure you. But maybe this can help you. And, and over and over, she was hearing this. You know there's nothing that we can do to cure you. But, you know, it, it was like they were reading, pronouncing the death sentence over and over. But I want to tell you something. This is what I saw, and I'll never forget it. My, I've told you what a wonderful, powerful saint of the Lord. My mom had great faith. Let me tell you something. She, you could see hope on her face. With each one of those doctors, with each one of those therapists, with each one of the dietitians, with every, every one of them, after they gave her that grim report, she would look up with that smile, and her voice is already contorted by ALS, so she's having a hard time struggling to speak, but I knew what she was saying. She would look up with that big, broad smile, and she would say, I'm not afraid, because I serve a great God. I'm not afraid. Because I serve a great God. How can you have hope in the face of an incurable, deadly disease? It's when your faith and trust is in the God who possesses all power and who has promised us one day we'll be with Him for eternity. You can say the same thing, whatever Satan sends your way. You can look it in the face and say, I'm not afraid because my hope rests in Jesus Christ, His righteousness. Listen, this is the God who calls us to glory in Christ. And he says there in verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Oh my goodness, look, look at the significance of, of what he's saying there. God is extended to us his very glory. He sustains us through our troubles by his amazing grace. We, we have access not only to his saving grace, hallelujah, but listen, every day that we encounter hardships and trials and struggles, listen, we live with God's sustaining grace. He told Paul when he was praying about the thorn in his flesh, he says, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. He sanctifies us through suffering to achieve his ultimate goal. And that's the way it was for Peter. Our God alone is worthy 
of glory. Look at the verse 11. The same God, back in verse 10, who will perfect you. One day we will be perfect. God will, He will establish us as we are in His eyes, children of God. Strengthens us as we walk through this life. He will settle you. He will calm you. Whatever you may be facing, God will settle in you. Look at verse 11. To Him be the glory and dominion forever. Paul, Peter is going into a, a beautiful doxology. To Him be the glory. To Him be the glory. Is that not how Jesus concluded the model prayer when He was teaching His disciples to pray? He concluded the prayer by saying, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. When we look to heaven and we call upon the Lord, no matter what the situation may be, we should always acknowledge that He's the one who has a power. He is the one who is the king of the kingdom. And He is the one who has all glory. And He will prevail. I, I just I, I couldn't help it. I, I was looking back and thinking about the, the words of Job and, and the oldest book of the, of the Bible. Here we are looking at one of the last books of the of the Bible, and we go back to one of the oldest books. Job predated Christ. He predated the gospel. Job didn't know a thing about the cross. He didn't know about the promises that you and I have through the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But would you please listen to the hope in this man of God? that we find in Job chapter 19, verse 25. Listen to what Job said. For I know that my Redeemer lives. He shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job had it going on, didn't he? He understood in his heart. He didn't understand all the things that we know about how God's plan of redemption was going to work out but Job knew that his faith was in the God of all glory the God of all power the God whose kingdom kingdom would reign forever Job said listen I'm not afraid I've got hope in my heart because I know by faith that even after I die one way or another my God has convinced me I will stand in his presence I will be in my body I'll see him with my eyes and I will give him glory Amen. praise the Lord and just like a good movie Peter gives credits at the end. <laughs> because if you're thinking about, man, Peter did a great job writing this. Guess what? Peter didn't write it. Not literally. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He dictated it. Peter's smart. He says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Silvanius. Silvanius. That's Silas. That's Paul's traveling companion that we find earlier in the book of Acts. After Barnabas had departed from Paul, Silas had the privilege of going to a Philippian jail and getting beaten half to death and thrown down there and singing praises with Peter. I mean with Paul. So here's, isn't it amazing how God brings people back into the scene? And he's so, so he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm greeting you on behalf of, 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 of Silvanius or Silas. And then he goes on to verse 13. Look, at, it's interesting. She who is in Babylon. Peter is using cloaked language because they refer to Rome as Babylon. He doesn't want to expose in case the letter falls into secular hands, Roman hands, that he's talking about the Christians at Rome because they're the ones that are in the most heat, if you understand, persecution. 
But he wanted the, the Christians to know in Asia Minor, listen, your brothers and sisters at the church of Rome, man, they are cheering you on. They send their love to you. They're right there in the furnace themselves, and yet they are praying for you. They send their love to you. I like the idea that we pray for like-minded churches. I want to pray for brothers and sisters who know the Scriptures as we know it and, and, and hold up the, truth, the values that we do and, and, and engage in the kingdom work like we are. And we should pray for them, just like the church in Babylon, Rome, was praying. And he says, so does Mark, my son. Not Peter's biological son, but another character, a blast from the past. His old John Mark, the very one that was with Paul, and Barnabas on their first uh, early missionary journey, and he, he was young, he was intimidated by all these pagans and all these rugged travels, and so he deserted Paul. But the Bible tells us that later John Mark was recovered to Paul. Paul had good use for him, and, and now he's here with Peter, and he's working with Peter. And so tradition tells us that Peter was very instrumental in helping John Mark to write the gospel that would bear his name, the gospel of Mark. And he says, Mark sends gospel. In verse 14, I'm going to let Pastor Mark, Pastor Chad dem demonstrate to you how to give the holy kiss, <clears throat> the kiss of love. Um, obviously in that culture, they would greet one another, you know, with a kiss on the cheek, kind of like Italians. Don't Italians kind of do that? Yeah, okay. We, Native Americans, they just throw tomahawks at each other as a sign of affection. But anyway, but he says, greet one another. With a kiss of love. Well, preacher, are you saying that we, instead of handshakes, we need to start kissing? I wouldn't really advocate it. <clears throat> if God so leads in your Holy Spirit, just make sure it's men kissing men and, not <laughs> and women kissing women because that would be acceptable in the culture, okay? But on the cheek, on the cheek. But you, you don't hear me saying next Sunday everybody's got to greet each other. But, but this is a way. Show your affection. In India, do they do y'all greet each other with a kiss? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> what about in Egypt? Do they? Oh, okay. So let Ramon and Ann show you how it's done. Okay. Praise God. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And you say amen. Praise the Lord. We have great exhortations given to us from a powerful man of God who understood what it was like to be humbled by the Lord and to be exalted by the Lord. And we have encouragement to know that the God of all glory is raising us up to His glory one day. And we have that to look forward to. But in the meantime, I challenge you to rise above the entanglements of your earthly residency that you might somehow through your mind and your spirit, in your life and your attitude, Embrace your citizenship in the kingdom of God.